Hi, my name is Chowder. My name is Anika. I'm Lija. And I'm Nadia. And this is Comicsverse. So when I talk comics with my non-nerdy coworkers and imaginary friends, I always tell them comics are much, much more than superheroes. While I'm a huge Batman fan myself, I often recommend them to check out graphic novels such as Why the Last Man, uh, Moss, and Fun Home. Now, there's one comic book that I read last year from Image Comics that joins my suggested reading list, and that's Infidel by writer Pornsack Bichetschut and artist Aaron Campbell. I hope I'm saying this. Joining me today are some of Comics versus um, Amazing Superstars to discuss the horror, racism, xenophobia, and infidel. So some really, really fun stuff. And spoiler alert, as we'll be diving deep into the comic and its characters. So let's introduce the podcast panelists, starting with the amazing Anika. Hello. How are you doing, Anika? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, is this your... How many podcasts have you done with Comics Verse so far? This is my third podcast. And you're super excited? Yes. Great. And then we have our editor of, our lead, one of our lead editor of Image Section Head, Lija, with the hard J. Y'all, that's me. How are you, you feeling, Lija? I'm chill. I'm here. That's what matters. <laughs> cool. And we have one of our writers from Comics Verse, Nadia. How are you doing, Nadia? I'm great. How are you? Awesome. Yeah. So we'll be talking about Infidel, a quick synopsis in the comic. So Infidel is a modern update of the classic haunted house story. Um, Infidel follows a young American Pakistani woman named Aisha Sun, who lives in a building on the Lower East Side with her non-Muslim white American fiance, Tom, his daughter, Chris, and his mom, Leslie. The building she resides in had a bomb go off, which killed some of its previous tenants. And Aisha soon discovers that the building's intolerance has taken on a terrifying life on its own. Yeah, so let's start maybe with the art. So, yeah, what do you guys think of, like, the gruesome sort of crazy, twisted, like these... I, I see them as, like, evil spirits that are sort of portrayed in this comic. Anyone feel free to join in? I loved the art. I really liked how the spirits were hyper real by comparison to like the characters. The other thing that I really liked, okay, I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead, but at the end, I noticed that when we actually meet the tenants who kind of caused the bombing, their faces when they were mangled were the same faces as the actual spirits, which was interesting that they kept that. And I thought that was a really interesting like tie together to it to really clarify that these were real people at one point. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought the spirits were absolutely gruesome to look at. They were not scary in a funny way at all. They were actually very horrifying. And horror, I think it's such a challenging genre when it comes to graphic novels, because you don't have sound, you don't have motion, which is so important for creating that jump scare effect. But really, I think the artist did such a great job, even though the challenge was there. I couldn't, like, I got the comic when I was going to go to sleep. And a couple of pages in it, I was like, I can't read this. I'm a wimp. I sleep with the lights on. I did not continue reading it. I was like, I need to read this in broad daylight. So I think that itself says, says that the artist did such a great job. I totally agree. And I want to add a few notes just as somebody who also likes to draw. And so I appreciate different art styles. I think this he said it was his, like his debut comic, right? The artist. And that's just phenomenal. It's his first creator-owned comic. So I totally agree with you. And I want to add a few things as someone who loves to draw and appreciates art styles and comics. I mean, really, it's kind of like an art gallery type thing when you go into a comic shop, right? So that being said, I loved 
the expressivism like in his art style. I loved the composition. And it just seemed like, especially with the ghost to add to that, that there was this gradual progression intensifying, you know, the like the style as we see the ghosts, you know, further and further and, and it increases. And one thing I wanted to talk to you guys about too is the the use of red signifying really important moments and crucial parts of the story. Did you guys think that was pretty cool too? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, especially like the cover. Like, do you remember? It's just like the hand and then just like Aisha, their hijab on. Yeah. And then just like, it really immediately it sort of grabs your attention. And like the very first few pages, I see like his body horror, right? Like this, the, this thing that's like sort of like leeching onto her. And it's really, yeah, it really gave me the shivers. I thought of like John Carpenter's thing. I don't know if you guys seen that movie. Yeah, it's like very like deformed faces and stuff. But you can still see some sort of like human elements to it. So mm-hmm. it's not like maybe like otherworldly. Like you see like some hands and things like that. But it's just like the way like the, the limbs are like sort of like positioned, like almost like crawling. It's quite, quite haunting. It was very imaginative too, like the use of the ghosts in different parts of the story. And you can really see that they're that they're really feeding off of these horrific scenes that they're creating with the actual tenants in the building. Like the one guy who was the one ghost who was sort of like sitting on top of Tom. Do you guys remember that part? That was so cool. I think we also have to throw out there the use of panels. Cause like Nadia said, it's hard to get a jump scare from a comic, but he managed to do it with the paneling. Cause like, I remember when you, I think it's when the lights go out and Aisha goes to check out what's going on and you turn the page and there's just this horrible thing. Next thing you see staring at you, it's when the eye like falls on her. But just using, I bought a hard copy. So like, I don't know what the digital copy looked like is you, cause I, I wanted to hold it and actually see it. So when I turned the page and saw that, I was like, oh God. And then like, I might've been reading it at work and I might've had a coworker walk in as I like dropped it and they looked at it. They're like, what are you reading? And where can I get one? Cause this looks amazing. And I was like paneling. I was also actually reading the digital copy at work and even worse, I was reading it in my work computer and I totally catched one coworker passing and being like, okay, what, what is that? <laughs> but I didn't care. So <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about the protagonist of the story, Aisha Hassan? Yes. So with Aisha, when I was reading her, reading about her, actually, she reminded me so much about myself because we have the same initials, like Anika Hussein, Aisha Hassan, which is like really uncanny. And she also reminded me of another favorite character that I have, which is Kamala Khan. And I don't know if the similarities were intentional or unintentional. They're both from New Jersey. They're both Pakistani-American. They're both Muslim. And probably because Kamala was a very, is a very likable character. So maybe they, the writer really wanted Aisha to be this likable character that the readers love. So I'm thinking that's intentional. I'm not sure if it is. I don't know the writer's intention, but I do have some thoughts about Aisha as a character. And I'd love to hear your thoughts first. But yeah, I'm going to share my thoughts after I hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I do see some similarities with Kamala Khan, um, aka Miss Marvel. They're both sort of very positive. They have this positive attitude. I see Aisha as, a, as an idealist, more of a, like a wishful thinker. She wants things to be good, even when you know people aren't kind to her. There was a very like amazing, I thought, quote from her friend, her best friend, Medina, where she says, in a room full of shadows, she's obsessed with the light. And I thought that, yeah, that really describes Aisha very well. 
Yeah, I think she's very, she's a young American, as you've said, relaxed, I would say. You know, she's, I don't know if you guys spot, but like she was hanging out with Medina and her friends. She had like an IPA in her hand. I don't know if you, caught, if you saw that in one of the panels. I'm like, oh, she's drinking beer. I remember those days. Yeah, she's a very... Would you say that she is a strong female character? That's a little tough. Because I see her in a way, I see her as a, as a victim. You know, she's this, again, this very nice, nice person. And she gets attacked by these sort of like these ghoulish demon spirits. And then she, we find out later she's hospitalized, right? So she doesn't really get to have that like, I'll fight you demons, you know, come at me moment. It's just, she gets attacked and she's hurt from it. So I do think her character maybe like later develops. She's maybe a little bit more awoke to her surroundings things that have happened she takes it in yeah maybe that's a that's a don't think about it maybe there should be a sequel to her like mm-hmm. what happened after maybe she goes back to the house or something that's all that's all i'll stop from that for now Lija or nadia if you guys have any thoughts i would have to add by saying that i mean people have different kinds of strengths or characters you might see strength reflected in different ways and for aisha i would have to say she kind of has a bit of a quiet strength but she's very, very brave. I mean, you know, when she has to interact with other characters and, and the demons near the other characters, and I'm sure, I mean, it's also, we, we see that it's, you know, having her question her reality when at, at certain points, like in, in the room, when the characters, you know, couldn't see, like, or, or most of them couldn't see the, the one specter, you know, from behind the plant in the apartment scene. But I would say, so we'll talk about the racism stuff later on, but, you know, she has these opportunities to confront, you know, very, how I don't know how else to put it, but just very casual or, or implied type of speculation, you know, towards her or some subtle discrimination towards her, you know, in flashback scenes, but she always handles it so nobly. I mean, as someone who grew up Muslim American and seeing those different subtle things, you know, from people directed at people around me, like my mom who wears headscarf, it makes me angry because I feel like they're not giving her a chance. They don't know her. They don't know what's in her personality. And Aisha, you know, in the story, she is sometimes subtly questioned. And that's where the whole conflict with her, like her mother-in-law, soon to be type figure, you know, what she's kind of like. But at the same time, she never gets angry. She always puts the best face forward. Like you were saying earlier, Chowder, like she sees the light, you know, in people from, from Medina's quote. That's what I, I'll stop there for now. Maybe like, yeah, like you talk about, we're like pausing here, but like we talk about Aisha and then maybe like segue to Medina. Wait, I have some thoughts about Aisha. Okay. So after Lisha, then Nika, and then Lisha, you can... Or maybe if it's easier for me to say first, if the transition works better that way. Maybe we're directing too much. Maybe we should just go with with the flow. Actually, what I want to say... Yeah, let's just go with the flow. ...that, you know, kind of like piggybacking what Nadia said. So... I think it's right. It's good for me to jump in right yeah. now. Okay. Yeah, we're planning too much. Yeah. So regarding Aisha, she's definitely a very likable character. She's very sweet. And I also saw her as a victim. So it's challenging to really label her as a strong character. But at some times, I felt she was almost too likable. Like she felt a little bit flat to me. I'm like Aisha as well. I'm an outsider would see me as someone like Aisha, someone who's like really like quiet and sweet and soft-spoken. But, you know, inside I have like different 
thought processes that's not necessarily all the time good or I'm not necessarily thinking the best about everybody all the time. And if I was in Aisha's place, I wouldn't have trusted Leslie from the very beginning. She was someone who trusted her, who believed that Leslie meant well. But personally, maybe because of the childhood experiences that I've had, you know, growing up post 9-11, I've seen white women giving me and my mother death stares. And I grew up with that sort of feeling uncomfortable around people who who are looking at me. I'm automatically thinking that they're labeling me. They're thinking that their life is in danger because of me. So it was difficult for me to sort of see Aisha like believing the best in others that they like she was almost too good for me. You know, I, I wanted to see more complexities in her and Maybe if there are more opportunities to explore complexities in the relationship with her mother, for example, because that was one relationship that wasn't perfect. And every other relationship, she was like the perfect daughter-in-law, perfect stepmom, perfect fiance. So I really wanted to see more imperfections in there. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm going to stop ranting about complexities now. So you're not going to like this. We need to keep in mind too that though, this is a horror story. With a horror story, you always have one woman who is considered innocent and is generally virginal, which in this case is not, I'm not going to speculate, but I don't know. But generally that woman makes it till the end. Aisha directly translates to she who lives. So like she has to survive in order for her to survive a horror. She has to be this like really bizarre level of innocent almost above it. Now, I do think Aisha is a strong character. I will not say she's a strong female lead because the series is five issues long. She was gone by second, the end of the second issue. Like three out of the five issues, she's pretty much not present. So it's like, how can you be a lead and be unconscious in a bet? You know, I would argue that Medina, I would argue Medina is actually the strong female lead in this whole thing. I find word choice in this book to be really important because everything they do seems to really come down to the words you pick and how you say things. Medina is the place of worship where you go for, where Muslims go for pilgrimage, which I feel like makes her more of a strong female lead, just inherently with her name alone, not including the fact that she's willing to go oh my god so far for her friend i'm sorry my friend i'd be like bye good luck like that's a ghost Uh uh-uh like i know how this game plays i'm just gonna go home but i'm not that good of a friend what do you guys think? Yeah, I saw Medina as like a foil to Aisha. Aisha was like, you know, like a devoted to her, to her religion. Medina was more outspoken. She wasn't afraid to say what's in her mind. She wasn't as religious as Aisha. And uh, there was there was a, I think it was the beginning of the comic or um, first chapter where Aisha like sort of tells her about Leslie and then like Medina immediately like takes like Tom's side. Like, yeah, his mom is manipulative. Like you shouldn't trust her. But she's, to me, she was like a, a little bit, like more of a stronger uh, character. She was to me. She was the fighter, and you know, at the end again. I'm spo- spoiler alert. She ends up sacrificing herself, and by you know, getting rid of these sort of demons and stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I would also agree with Elysia probably. Like, I don't think I could ever do that. Perfect. It's not even that she sacrifices herself. She sacrifices herself and her name. So at the end, they think she's a terrorist. Like that's all she has and all she's known for anymore. You know, and she wasn't even any of those things. And that's like the she's, biggest. She's seen as a martyr in a way. Yeah. That's so, yeah, that's, that's sad. Yeah, I agree. I thought Medina was the heart and soul of the book. And I found it interesting how the comic is called Infidel and Medina identified as 
like an infidel, a non-believer. So it's almost as if the comic is for her. She is the hero of the comic. And also, I just, I loved how she was so unapologetically proud of her Black Muslim identity. And I would say Aisha is a person that I already am. And Medina is a person that I aspire to be. So... I don't know what to say because I feel like she was a warrior type character. You know, they're totally juxtaposed. You know, if Aisha's the the innocent, you know, giving everybody the benefit of the doubt, you know, sunlight type character, you know, Medina is very aware. She's not, and she's, instead of being unconfrontational, she is not afraid to be confrontational. Like there's like the one scene where she confronts Haley Whole Foods, you know, for it was, I think, 4D. I do get the apartments mixed up, but I, I mean, you know, the characters. I did love that they, as a side note, that they did reference each other by like the, the, the letters and the names of their apartments. That was kind of funny to me, like a little subtle thing. But I mean, I think I could see how in theory Medina could do something like that if they had been really close friends since they were eight and r- practically sisters. I mean, personally, for, for me, I don't know if I could do that, but it would have to be a really, really good friend. So, if, But I also think that at that point, you know, it could be part of Medina's personality that, you know, not only if, like, if she's loyal, but also that she is a bit of a defender. And if in that heated moment, you know, she was, I mean, one, she just saw two people that she knew get killed. Two, what if she was thinking in the way of, I'm going to save people from, any more people from being affected by these demons, these people that became amplified in, in the most negative elements of their traits. You know, I mean, there's there was that scene in that basement where she catches Mitchell and she pulls that list and shares it with him and says, you know, you weren't so different from her. You guys actually liked a lot of the same things. I think that was one of the strongest moments Medina had in that story was that she was able to take something beautiful that Aisha found and use it in a way as armor and use it in a way to shine light. One other really quick side thing, her, you know, sacrificing her name. And her reputation, like what Lisa said earlier, that's like every Muslim's like worst nightmare. I feel like this is totally a horror story for like us. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you try to do everything like good in your life and be the best person you can be. And if people know this like detail about your life that you are or grew up Muslim, you know, like they like that's probably going to talk about that. I, I don't want to jump too far ahead. But I mean, you have to make sure that nothing you have to be the best person you can be i mean if anything just to prove everybody else wrong because of their their stereotypes or their misconceptions but she does everything right and she still like it still happens and people still see this in her and it's just like no she wasn't that person she wasn't tight i think we've learned that we're all bad friends <laughs> I would be totally fine if, you know, one of my best friends was like, no, like, did you see that? Did you see that thing come out of that room that just came crawling out with his arms over his head? No, I'm not going to. I can't even be mad at my friend. I'd be like, you know what? I wouldn't go in there either. And just to sort of clarify for listeners, maybe like a little bit of background of her, like, I was raised Muslim, but I'm, I'm no longer, I'm an atheist now. So are you guys, Anika, are you practicing? I am a practicing Muslim. I obviously do not follow every single rule. I mean, I think anyone who's a practicing Muslim would say that they're not perfect. So I try. I'm a lot like Aisha in that sense that we're, we're really trying to be good Muslims, even though we're not. Um, since we're, we're also talking about, I will describe myself as a cultural Muslim butterfly in limbo. <laughs> <laughs> 
trying to figure out what it is I actually believe and appreciating the parts of what I grew up with that helped me be a good person, but still trying to connect it to the world around me. So I am that. That's what I am. And Lisa, do you have any like I remember? So I was raised Muslim. My dad's actually Southeast Asian, which I just want to bring that up because it's important to point out that Southeast Asia and a lot of Asia itself, very Muslim. We often forget. I just want to throw that out there. I'm just saying, but I was raised Muslim, but I pretty much atheist at this point. Cool. Well, uh, sort of boring Medina-esque in a way. I think that's one of the reasons I really liked her characters because I did relate to her really hard, but I guess maybe my family handled it differently because like my dad tried so hard and it got to the point where him making jokes about arranged marriages just stopped being funny and then started getting into that weird gray territory where his friends were asking me and I was like yeah no yeah no they'd ask me because they had sons let me clarify oh, this gotcha. they had sons yeah. let me clarify this <laughs> no they were like so what kind of voice do you like and I'm like you are a grown ass man go away I am 17 doing my oh, thing no can't tell me what I'm a practicing Muslim but I am not doing an arranged marriage sorry parents but (laughs) I grew up in a pretty I would say because I'm from Bangladesh which is a much more liberal country I would say it's more much more secular because we just we grow up with all different kinds of cultures you know I grew up celebrating like Christmas I grew up celebrating like puja like Hindu people so I've really grown up to respect every other religion and I'm very lucky to have parents who are understanding so they they're someone who wouldn't really force arranged marriage on me hopefully but interracial marriage that might be an issue we're gonna talk about that later but yeah some good stuff coming up i think it's great that we're all talking about the comic in the most optimistic sense it's really nice to see that someone would choose like an american muslim as like a main character and then tell the story especially in light of like today's political climate and i think that the experience of being muslim american and also, you know, like an traditional culture. So I'm, my family is Lebanese. So like there's that also thrown into the mix. But it's, you know, collectively here, it's just so nuanced and varied. It's really hard to describe or accurately portray what it would be like because everybody has such a different experience. It's, you know, where you're at in a state and then what your community is like and all these other like influences in your environment. And so it's, it's something that I think is really difficult to capture, but at the same time, picking like, you know, a series of Muslim characters or Muslim American characters as protagonists in the story about xenophobia in America is really important because like this type of character, if translated to a person in real life, would experience just could kind of be related. Do you guys know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, We've got some great points. Though. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Should we talk about the other women in the comics? Should we talk about... So we have Aisha's mom. Also, her name is Medina. And Tom's mom, Leslie. Yes. So when we do see Aisha's mom and Tom's mom, Medina and Leslie, and their respective roles in the comic and how they relate to or how they deal with the the other characters in the story, they're both in a similar situation, right? Because they're both the parents of a child that is a relationship with somebody of a different faith and a different culture. And they both handle it in different ways, although they might have more in common than they think. But I would like to ask you guys before sharing my thoughts, what what you think of their role in the story, their contrasting, or like their similarities in personality, differences in personality, their believability, and the significance of their roles as the story plays out. So Aisha's mom, her name is also Medina. 
you know, didn't want Aisha to go to a white college. And she like practically disowned her when she like got engaged with Tom, the non-Muslim white male. And Tom's mom, Leslie, was was an Islamophobe, you know, and had sort of the way I saw it, she had this like paranoia, which sort of manifested as racism. For example, remember that page when she was taking the train and then she sees a black man and then like she immediately likes her purse. She, she just like holds it tighter. Yes. When I think about it, I see these two characters as like second chances in a way. For example, like, you know, they brought described by their children as manipulative, but I think there's like some sort of sign of progress from both parties. Like Leslie, you know, she was saying to, you know, her, her granddaughter that, you know, you shouldn't be like, Aisha, you shouldn't follow her footsteps and, you know, pulling the hijab and all that stuff. But like, you see it later that she, it seems like they were getting along or she was trying to understand her. But unfortunately, like she gets killed, you know? So maybe sometimes like those that try to change for the good and, you know, they try to be open-minded, they may get caught in some sort of crossfire and it could, lead to horrible things and like as for medina aisha's mom at the end you see her like she comes back for her she like supports her financially and emotionally later at the end you know so and then she accepts chris as well so i think these two characters even though they both have their like conflicts the way i saw it is there's some good indications that there were some changes coming up at least for medina because rest in peace leslie yeah i think the relationships that the children had with the mothers i think they were portrayed pretty realistically because not necessarily children don't necessarily have that loving sort of relationship that traditional mother child loving relationship that we usually see being portrayed on media and you know they both like tom and aisha they both have this sort of difficult relationship with their mothers and and it's sort of understandable why their mothers are the way they are i mean for aisha's mother for example she's coming from this you know background assuming that she is an immigrant. She wasn't raised in America. She was probably raised in Pakistan and then she moved to America. And so she has these, she thinks, she sees the world, you know, she's in America as an outsider and her child who is growing up in America is an insider in America. I mean, she has her own internal struggles where she's thinking, hey, I don't belong anywhere, but she sort of grows up to become more Americanized. And whereas for the mother, it's almost as if they're, they're losing their child, you know, to this different culture. So they, for them, it's confusing when their child is, you know, going, following this path that they think is wrong. And I wouldn't totally label her as racist, even though what she was doing was racist, but I understand where it's coming from. And even with Leslie, she is definitely Islamophobic, but I also understand where that comes from. And I think there was some incident that happened with her husband. And she briefly mentions that when she's talking about why she was terrified about the hijab. And she doesn't really get into it as much, but we sort of get this maybe... Her husband was one of the tenants. He was living there. I we don't we. There's yeah maybe. There's a possibility. I guess. There's this um. I don't know if you guys recall. There was a, there was a page when Aisha like had a knife and she acts all like almost like stabbed yes. Leslie. And then Leslie grabs the knife and then like for like just a few seconds she sees the reflection of one of the demons on the knife. And I saw that I interpreted that as like I saw it as like. Uh, her sort of maybe seeing her reflection in a way maybe she's starting to realize like that the way she was thinking was wrong so that's i saw her as like someone who's like maybe if she was still alive would have probably had some progression and would be more open-minded 
You know, in a way, it's almost like if we look at, you know, how the ghosts are trying to fuel these racially charged conflict scenes, you know, throughout the story so far, you know, when they use Aisha to push her down the stairs, it's almost as if we could interpret that as they wanted to get rid of her. I mean, because she could have maybe inspired some positive change and reversed and weakened them. So they could, she could have been a threat in addition to somebody seeing Aisha and thinking that, oh, she was the one who did it because of the other guy who was in the apartment before and all of that. Leisha, do you want to add as well to what you think of the, the, two, the, the two moms? Maybe I'm just a terrible person. I just saw them as plot devices. You know, like I said, with horror, you got to be secular, which is why no sequel. But um, you have to remain secular. And we kind of end on a note that says this is just going to happen again because she's pretty much in the same situation. Like, it's just now she's Tom and she's going to find a new Aisha. Like, do you know what I mean? Yes. Being a little bit more pessimistic than us, I think. Oh, yeah. No, you have no <laughs> idea. The other thing I'm going to point out is that I don't think we can make any sort of judgment on, on Aisha's mother, Medina. We can't because all we get is Aisha's perspective. And let's face it, when you, anytime you get a first-person narrative, you just can't trust it if you can't see it yourself because that's all got – it's got it's nothing but saturated with personal opinion. So whatever opinion Aisha gave us about her mom is kind of like – Would you say the same for Tom's mom, Leslie? We got to know her better. She actually spoke more than like three times. You see her panel when she's like oh, – when Aisha's – like praying, she's like passing by and looking like you see her facial expressions as well. So that helps yeah, too. Yeah. Right. So we get more of an idea how she's feeling about it. Whereas with Aisha's mom, we have zero idea. And I kind of saw them as a way to keep the story secular and to keep us from getting comfortable, you know, because now our protagonist lives with somebody who very well could snap and stab her with the knife that she almost stabbed her with and claimed to self-defense. Like that's a thing that could have happened. Like, I agree. We do have a lot more to go off of with Leslie than we do with, with Medina, Aisha's mom. Honestly, I feel kind of, well, so I appreciate that, you know, the writer, you know, did research and spoke with some Pakistani American Muslim women in the process of constructing these characters. But, and I was saying earlier about how we have like these different nuances in our experiences here in this country. I found myself with what little we had to go off of because we didn't really see a lot of that character, I kind of question the believability of that character because for a few different reasons, but that's just from my own experiences. Everybody has a different experience. So if this is inspired by somebody else's experiences, then, you know, I'm just only speaking from my own experiences. So the community I grew up in was half Pakistani and half African-American. We didn't have a lot of like out of in our Muslim community. And so I grew up with a lot of other girls my age who were Pakistani and I've never seen their parents, you know, freak out about them going to another college. And they were immigrants and they, you know, they had moved here also. And, you know, they were also first generation. And I've never seen that. In contrast, it's, it's kind of the opposite. It's like, I feel like I'm the worst product of the entire group because everybody else went off to get these like medical degrees and grad school. And they're like pushing, like, get an education, go get like the best education. And I'm sitting here with like an English degree and like, you know, arts, like just not doing anything that like, you know, super like medical or technological or anything, you know, but, but it just seems like, I guess I have like a much more positive experience of that. So I don't know. I mean, I could see it happening as like a rare case, you know, that there would be like a conservative parent that's like, oh, I don't want to send my kid to college. I mean, personally, also with the whole interracial dating that her mom has a bit of a gripe with, with Aisha dating Tom. And I can relate to that to some extent. Um, just, you know, being here. But I also haven't really seen parents like 
not talk to their kid for a year over it either. I mean, they might be upset and voice their opinions and their discontent, but it's it's like these little things that are supposed to reflect like a Muslim culture here. That's not really been my experience either. So I also wanted to ask you guys like what you thought. I mean, (laughs) if that's okay, you don't have to comment though. It's, I mean, it's whatever you're comfortable with. I've heard parents doing even worse than just stop talking to their children. I mean, I don't know if you guys have heard of the term honor killing, but that's the thing apparently where parents kill their children basically for not obeying them. I was questioning the believability of the character, the whole, it seems like nobody ever wants to keep their kid from going to college if it's far away. And also the interracial dating. I can relate in some sort. In Aisha's perspective, my parents are very religious, but I just never really listened to them. So I don't think I've ever got a thing where like, oh, don't go to co- like white college or don't, don't go to college with these people. It's more, it's more of like, don't sort of interact with these people or don't follow their sort of their culture. You know, you're, you're a Muslim. You have to be, you have to behave a certain way. You have to be this way. You can't be an American. You can't follow mm-hmm. their path because you're going to go to hell, feed pork. But that made me more angry and more rebellious. And, and I became a Medina. I just friend. I became an atheist and I just did what I wanted to do. But at the end of the day, I don't have the most sort of, the best relationship with my parents, but I know that if anything happens to me, they, they're always on my side. I think I got my points back. Okay. Yeah, I think parents have done worse than just stop talking to their children for not obeying them. I'm sure you've definitely heard of honor killing where parents kill their children for not obeying what they ask them to do. So I grew up in a household where I was told that these are, you know, kind of like black and white rules of Islam, that this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. I wasn't really threatened that, oh, you could you could get killed if you don't do this. But when I was younger, I did blindly believe whatever that was said to me. I was much more devoted to Islam, I would say. But as I'm older, I do have so much conflicts with my mother time to time because of how she is much more devoted than I am. So many times we've had arguments about what is right and what is wrong. And sometimes I just want to say, please, mom, there is nothing that is right or wrong except for scientific facts. And she just can't get that. Everything is so black and white to her. So, and I've briefly brought up interracial dating and marriages before. And this is something I know my mom would probably be like how Aisha's mom is. She wouldn't stop talking to me completely. She wouldn't cut me off, but she would cause some drama about that. And if I am to marry someone who doesn't belong to my race and religion, I'm going to tell that person, are you ready to handle this drama? You know, I don't want you to go through all of this, but if you think it's worth it, then we can give this a shot. But if not, I don't want you to go through all of this. So I totally understood, you know, how Aisha's mom was. But I I think what she did wasn't as bad as what I've seen in the news of what parents do. I think it really depends on family because let me tell you a thing. So in my family, my dad is Malay. He's Muslim and my mom's Lutheran. But more importantly, my grandparents in Malaysia, my Nanette and Datuk. So I have an uncle. I don't know his name. I don't know what he did. I don't know his kids or his wife. He lives in the UK. Nobody talks about him. He did something that made my dad took so upset that like he doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Which is oddly fascinating. 
Did he marry a non-Muslim woman? Or no, that can't be it. Because my dad married a Lutheran oh, right, yeah. European <laughs> woman, so that can't be it. Maybe, I maybe, have no idea. There's only one exception. Your dad took it, and, your bro- and his brother followed it, and then like no, no, no. I don't think that was it either. Like I, honest to God, have no idea, and no one will talk about it. It's like he doesn't exist. Like seriously, just poof, gone. So I definitely understood how her. I didn't even question it when they were like, "Yeah, she stopped talking to me after I started dating Tom." I was like, "Oh." Yep. Mm-hmm. And I just kept going. I was like, I see, because I don't know. I've seen it. To me, it sounds like they're sort of our parents are like a product of their upbringing in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Is there a positive way to like change that and it like in their mindset? Is there a way to like make them understand? Is that, that all there ever? Yes, you can't change people. You really can't change people. But I mean, you know, it's like getting people out of their houses and out of their normal conversation circles and getting them to talk with other people who do not look like them, who do not have the same beliefs as them, who, didn't, who are not from the same part of the world or corner of the globe as them and getting them to really talk and then be able to find the commonalities much like Medina shares his commonalities of Aisha with Mitchell at the end of the story. And also just really quickly, I do want to say like, I do appreciate that the writer did his research. I will say that. I will also say that I, the reason I got hung up on it for a minute is that as somebody who loves to read stories and is just addicted to books and comics and stories, just period, you know, it's not often that you do see like an American Muslim character so when you do you're also like half of it is like oh hey this is cool and the other half is like is this real is this legit like how much like research they do or you know and i mean at the same time though i will also say i think that the whole the xenophobia the main theme the main current of the story i think that was very very well handled and i think that there was a lot that was brilliant so many brilliant moments in there i just yeah I want to add something to um, the thing you mentioned about changing minds of parents. This is not related, but it just reminded me of the Steven Universe episode, Change Your Mind. I don't know if any of you guys watch Steven Universe, but it, you know, in that episode, you know, Steven is getting this higher authority. You know, if you watch it, then you know it's White Diamond. If you don't, then basically a higher authority. So White Diamond is basically like this mother figure who just cannot accept Steven the way he is. And in the end, everything sort of works out and she does sort of, it kind of happens a bit too quickly. So I think that it's a children's cartoon, so I'm not complaining, but I thought that it wasn't as realistic because sometimes you just can't change people's mind. And my parents, they have been living in America for over 20 years and they have interacted with people of like different races, different religions. And while they respect other people, they love them for their differences. They would say, no, but when you're marrying, when you're settling down, it has to be someone who's similar to us. You know, they're saying that they're not being racist. They're saying that they just want to make my life easier because we're, you know, similar backgrounds, similar mindset. But it's, it's something that maybe, you know, I like to believe that my parents will be open-minded enough to accept if I do marry someone from a different race, different religion. I like to believe that they would eventually accept it. But I know that they would have that disappointment in me for the rest of their life that, oh, she has let us down by, you know, marrying this non-Muslim, non-Bengali person. So while I really want to believe that they would eventually, you know, accept and 
stop being racist. Deep in my mind, I know that they will continue being racist. And I guess I don't blame them. It's their upbringing. You know, sometimes no matter how much exposure you have as an adult, it's those childhood beliefs that you have. It just sticks with you forever. It's like that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You know, like you can introduce them to a lot of people, but that doesn't mean their mind's going to change. My grandma on my mom's side is a little, she's 90. I'm going to start there. I'm trying to think of a good way to put it. She's not, she's difficult and set in her ways. And sometimes she says things that she doesn't realize encompasses four out of seven of her grandkids, you know, that they're included in it. But no matter how much you point it out to her and she recognizes it's wrong, she doesn't think it's wrong. You know what I mean? So you get this really weird, I don't know, like she's just not going to see it and it's just not going to happen. Today she was talking about she did that thing where she's like, you can't say things that you used to be able to say. And I'm like, like what? What can you not say? She's like, it's considered a hate crime if you say things. I'm like, like what? Tell me what you want to say that you cannot say. She's like, well, like about people's hair. And I was like, oh, because one time I've got really curly hair, right? Like it's tied up. You can't see it, but it's super curly and it gets real big. I worked at this place and my boss straight up told me that I would look more professional if I straightened my hair and that I needed to start doing that. I told her where to put her opinion, right? Because no one's going to tell me what to do, which is what makes me a really terrible Muslim as a child. But that's not the point. Point is, I tell her that story and she goes, oh yeah, that's a hate crime. And I'm like, are you listening to what you're saying? Is there, like, this is the type of thing they want people to not say. Like, I don't know what you're getting at when you say like hair. That's the thing that happened today, and I'm not happy about it, so it's a tangent. My point before, question before was if this comic was too on the nose. You know, her being a young Muslim American and what the demons represent, the whole racism thing and, and Islamophobia, that kind of thing. Is that too, like, you know, when you've seen Get Out, uh, Jordan Pitt's Get Out, you, you, I'm sure you've loved the, if you've seen it, you uh, like had a, you know, you knew what it was about. So, like, was it too on the nose? Is this book, like, when you're reading, oh, great, like another young American getting teased by white male, the whites, and then. I don't think it was because we don't really have enough of those stories yet. I mean, yeah, we have Miss Marvel, which is great. I haven't really read enough. I mean, at least for mainstream comics, there aren't enough that are. And it's only recently becoming sort of this trend of, you know, like showing diversity in mainstream media. So for me, I think I need to see this more. I need I need this to be too much on the nose, you know, until it's way too much because it's it's not enough yet. I agree with you. Yeah. Like when I read it, I'm like I like when I first read it, I was like, this is a genuine like horror book. And then like and then like but as as I was reading it, I was I was like, okay, I got all of this. Like like understood it. But yeah, you're right. I there isn't enough sort of like these character representations, any sort of medium uh, you know, that I know, you know, in TVs, movies, and even comic books. So for me, yeah, it wasn't too like on the nose in a way, a little bit, but the, it didn't make it a bad thing. It was it, it, like it elevated it in, in a way. So even if it was, I'm okay with that. Great. <laughs> That's what I want to say is even if it was, I'm okay with it because people need to see this. People need to see that it happens. People need to see that. I mean, I don't know how often it happens. You know, we don't really know. I think Infidel really made me think about the word racism deeply. And there's certain things like, for example, in one instance, we see Ethan questioning, you know, if it's racist to be attracted to just white people. And that really made me 
have this philosophical discussion with my friend whether or not that is racist. And while we were having that discussion, I thought it's important to look out the definition of racism on Google. So the definition of racism is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. So in short, racism is basically prejudice, discrimination, thinking that your race is more superior than the others. And I just want to discuss some questions and see if that is racist or not. So yeah, this game is called, is this racist? So let's begin. Thinking all members of a certain group look the same or are the same. Is that racist or is it not? <laughs> Definitely. No, it's, it's funny because like it, when you bring that up, like I think of my, like I have like a sort of like a flashback of like how I was growing up and then like I see myself like in middle school just being a little dick and like not understanding the world and taking part of like things like that, like slurs and things like that and saying these things that I really didn't know or I didn't understand. So yeah, there's for myself, I think I've grown up for sure. But I can definitely, I can be honest and say, yeah, yeah. like when I was younger, I would probably take part of um, things that are super racist. So not by actions. God, yeah, not by actions, but like words that I'm saying. It's just me. Have you guys done imitation, like imitated other? I imitate my own race. I think it's totally okay for me to make an Indian accent. But when someone else does it, okay. it's not okay. <laughs> Are you offended by a poop? That's a really good question like a, that you bring up. Like you guys heard like the thing that was, and it's his voice is done by a white man. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, what's that guy's name? Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. He also did this advertisement of this chips where he fakes all these like different kinds of accents. And then, you know, the spicy version of that chips was like Indian and he had, you know, like a beard and a turban. So I guess, yeah, that is offensive you know it's only okay when we are making fun of ourselves it's not okay when another you know someone from different race group is making fun of us is it okay if we make fun of ourselves i mean i think it is like it's yeah. to laugh at ourselves i totally think it's well, what okay if, what if that person the other person is a com like comedian and they're either imitating or saying something that that can be considered racist but they're in, that's probably not their intention because they're a comedian but mm -hmm. do we let that slide or do we like sort of think they're racist like i think it's a reflection of them more than anything you know like that's what they think is funny it sometimes it, it depends on what they say sometimes it hurts and sometimes i don't know you just can't really take them seriously but that's defense mechanism you know like walls up or whatever but i mean i do want to say though i think that we do need to make fun of ourselves because that's how we as a culture like reflect on things and revolve like i would love for like a lebanese comedian to like do a body image comedy set because that's like one thing like everybody is so obsessed like every maternal figure is like did you gain weight did you lose weight oh i need to go on a diet and it's like that kind of thing that's kind of a tangent but I am saying one thing though, I also want to add really quickly. I think that there are different levels of racism. There's like unconscious and conscious and where it really becomes an issue is if they're aware and they still hold the same opinions. I think if people like, if they say stuff like that, it's because they're ignorant and they don't know, like they're a product of their environment. Like they have not seen or interacted with enough people of educated about different cultures and religions and to see that we're all people at the end of the day with feelings, emotions, and that want the same things. 
you know, but if, so if they don't have enough of those conversations, they're going to think stupid things like, oh, we all look the same or whatever. Like, like, you know, people like, oh, I mean, you know, like I experienced it at my high school. Sorry to rant for a second, but my friend was asking me the other day because we both kind of went to the same types of high schools and the, the high school I went to was largely white and there wasn't a lot of diversity there. And there were like five of us that was wearing a headscarf at the time. And there was one girl that people would ask if like we were sisters because we both wore headscarf and we both had Arabish features. But we also later on went to the same college type thing. And like, she's not the same as like, we're not, we, we don't look alike. <laughs> yeah. I actually want to add on to that. So I have a similar sort of experience. In my previous workplace, there was this woman who was South Asian. She wasn't completely South Asian. She was half South Asian, half European. And I was also the other only South Asian person in the office. So there has been a couple of instances where people called me by her name and we both have Muslim names and we know we look nothing alike. We she has short hair, I have long hair, she has bangs, I'm always in the middle part, she's pretty and I'm not. So she's so not like me. But people still confuse us all the time. And we were having a conversation about this and you know she we were talking, we were basically talking about whether this is racist or not. And we kind of agreed that it was low-key racist, but at the same time, now that I'm thinking about it based on like the definition of racism, I mean, they weren't really discriminating against us. They, they were mixing us up. And I'm not really sure. I mean, I am offended that they don't know who I am, but I'm not sure if that is racist. Like that's something that I'm, I'm still confused about. You guys have thoughts? I'd say it was because, hear me out, when somebody says that they can't tell the difference between people within the same culture, demographic... It's because they're not taking the time to look at you. Like, and the fact that these people are not taking the time to look at you and your coworker and go, oh, look, this girl's got bangs, which I feel is such a like, that is like the biggest indicator. Even it if is they an identifying even, factor. Yes. If they can't even look you in the eye and notice that you don't have bangs, so you must be, you know, I'm so sorry. You're not naughty. I was going to call you naughty. <laughs> Do you know these coworkers outside of work? Do, do you know who they are? Like, you know that, are they coming from a good place? they like, oh, you know, sorry to get your name mixed up. And then, you know, in the end, they do feel embarrassed about it. You know, it's obviously not something that they do intentionally because I see the embarrassment in their faces when I say, oh, I'm not that person. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't interact with them outside of work. You know, my knowledge of like what, you know, their thought process is, is very limited. But I, I would like to believe that, you know, they felt pretty embarrassed and stupid about it later on. Yeah. And hopefully learned to notice the differences in other people who might, you know, I was actually thinking of BTS, the K-pop band. And there's actually so many people who say that, oh, they just look the same. And then fans of BTS get really defensive about it. And they're like, no, they don't look the same. You're just not looking at them closely. And these are just people who are completely disregarding this band because, oh, they're Korean, they're K-pop. So what? You know, they're totally disregarding this band. They're not, you know, even trying to like listen to their music or see, you know, look at them and see the differences. So I totally agree with, you know, what Leisha said. I think now I do have my answers that it probably is. I would say low key though, still. I wouldn't say it's like, you know, something that's very 
intentionally done. It's it's racist, but it's still something that's very low key. I think that's also one of the most dangerous type of racism is the unintentional because you don't notice you say it. And when people point it out, it's kind of like you're breaking their foundation in them thinking they're not. So automatically they become defensive, which is where the danger comes in, because that could automatically make them flip to, oh, well, if this is what you're going to think, then maybe everybody like that thinks that way. You know what I mean? I might just I was going to say, I know that I'm a very like apocalyptic thinker. But I'm an end of world thinker, so like anything that comes for me is just going to be like House of Cards has fallen, it's not coming back, we're missing some cards, can't play any games, like so sorry if it comes off like terrible, but I mean for me it's like it's when they're aware and what they do about it that matters so much, like how they recover from that oh, like, oh no, I made this mistake. Like, do they actually try again or do they keep doing it? Because if they keep doing it, I'm like, no, this is not okay. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. I just, like, this, I keep thinking about how, like, when I was at college and one of my friends, like, she wore the headscarf. And at this point I wasn't wearing it because I had this whole, like, taking it on, taking it off thing. And my, like, I went to college, my mom was teaching in the nursing department. And so my friend, who's like half Jordanian and half from Alabama, like, she's wearing the headscarf and I'm my mother's daughter and I'm not wearing the headscarf. And people would always think that she was my mom's daughter and not me. And I'm like, but can you see the resemblance here? Like similar faces, like maybe I look more like my dad or something, but it's just, yeah, just one of those grudge, grudge, not grudge things, but just like, come on guys, really? Like just because they both wear a headscarf, like that means that they're apparently like, she's like her daughter. That's kind of, like ignorant. I mean, I think racism has more to do with like awareness, like if what people do about it. And I think people are always going to be like a little bit racist, but they need to be trying to just give people a fair chance. But honestly, like the whole face thing, I think a large part of that is just ignorance. It's just straight up ignorance. It's not knowing enough, not doing enough to have your environment be an accurate representation of the world or whatever. I, my words. Yeah. Hi. Sounds like you and um, Nadia and Anika, you guys are, I would say, more of Aisha's perspective of like maybe giving second chances or seeing the good in people. Where Alicia was like more, <laughs> just fire them. I and, think I'm uh, sort of in the middle, and you guys are like at the end of uh, both each, spectrums. Each, each yeah. yeah, but maybe I fall more on the optimism side. But yeah, sometimes you guys, you guys do sound more optimistic. Okay, optimistic, you know, which is I think is great, and I think we still need people like Alicia. Yeah. Like, no, it's like this. I think I also fall in the middle as well. But more um, on the negative side, you would say. <laughs> more, uh, yes. I'm trying to like pull up. I'm in the negative. I'm, I think negative, like negatively way too much. So I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more positive about it. I personally haven't gone through, like haven't experienced racism as much as like my, uh, my, my, my uh, parents, my siblings. I try to give people at least, uh, you know, second chances. Cause I know mm-hmm. I like, I definitely messed up in the past and pe- and people have given me a chance. I would give them a chance to redeem themselves. So it is tricky though. Like the whole, how optimistic can you be about it? Yeah. Because you can understand why it's happening and why somebody is the way that they are. That doesn't mean that you approve of their decisions and how they handle things and what they do, you know, like, but I'm really interested in hearing the next question. Oh, yes. Do you guys think it's racist to ask, no, where are you really from? Oh, it's so irritating, though. <laughs> like, where are you from, really? Earth? <laughs> like, no, if, you, if you say, like, I, I get that 
sometimes, you know, when someone asks me, where am I from? And my immediate response is, oh, you mean, you know, where I'm from or my ethnicity? Because I, I don't, I really want to avoid that. Where are you really from? That I italicized really. So I immediately answered that. Should I be doing that? Should I be unapologetically answering that I'm from Queens? Or should I clarify, you know, do you want to know my ethnicity or do you want to know where I live? I actually will bait that question. Like if they go, where are you from? I'll be like, earth. And they'll be like, where on earth are you from? Like they actually will break it down, which I love that. It's my favorite. So then when we get to Michigan, I go, you know, I'm from Michigan. And they're like, really? No, I mean, where are you really from? And then I go, do you hear yourself? Where are you really from? And then like, I'll return the question. And when they give me Michigan, I'll be like, no, I mean, really, where are you really from? Because I'm one of those people that I don't think people learn unless you show them why they look stupid. It's hard to explain it, but it's much easier when people can see it. So when you do it back to them, they think I'm a jerk, which they're not wrong. So that's fine. But it also does make them think about how they're asking things. And they go like, I actually had a classmate who was so good at it. She was like, so if you were going to identify with a culture, what cultural heritage do you think you would like place yourself in? And I was like, I love the effort. And I love the hustle in that question. I'll answer you nicely. Like, because there are ways to like go about asking without going, where are you really from? That's just taking the easy way out. I don't know. That's me. That's about when they ask you, like, it's not that, like, they ask you, where are your parents from? Is that, is there a nice, is that a much nicer way to go? And then, and they can follow up with, were you born there or were you born? That doesn't bother me as much either because they are asking like actual questions instead of just blindly insinuating that I'm just automatically not from here. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah, Yeah, that is a lot better, but Also, you can't really assume if their parents are from here or not, you know, not necessarily. I mean, yeah, my parents are immigrants. But, you know, if somebody asks my children, where are your parents from? Well, she's going to say, oh, my parents are from New York. And, you know, that kind of complicates things. You can't really assume that someone's parents are immigrants if they look different. But they're still going to have to, like, keep asking follow up questions to, like, just shake their hands and just. That's it. Don't converse. Don't even come to me. What I really don't understand is this human need to identify with a cultural group. Like, is there really something like, is it really even relevant? Am I, I mean, it is, don't get me wrong. Like who, it makes up part of who you are, but do I have to know what you identify with? You know what I mean? I don't know. You mean that's, that's more, just the way I stand. I'm like, you stay in your lane and mind your business. Like, do you mean more for like, like, like the culture perspective? Like where are they, like their ancestry rather than like identify themselves as a lower priest? Like, I don't know. Is that what you meant? I think so. I think that we're on the same page about like cultural identity. Like, yeah. I don't feel like I should have to explain that to anybody. I'm under no obligation to do that. I don't feel too close to the culture that where I was raised and I don't feel really close to the culture that's here. So I don't really care much for culture. Let's talk about like Netflix shows. Like, you know, for me, culture identity is something that I write so much about. And I've written so much about it in comics verse. I mean, I've, I did videos about it. And for me, my culture identity is sort of mixed, you know, Bengali, American. And I sort of take pride in the fact that I don't belong, but, I, but yet I still do. I'm sort of like this fusion of both cultures. And that's something that I take pride in. And I think, yeah, definitely when someone's just assuming 
that, you know, I love eating curry or something like that. That is, you know, sort of like borderline offensive. But I think it's different when it's it's someone who is similar to your culture. Like, you know, when I see a Pakistani, I immediately ask, are you South Asian? And for some reason, that's it's not like I'm asking because I want to like discuss things like Bollywood or, you know, talk about things that we can relate to, like, you know, you know, wearing salwar kameez or something like that. You know, it's just it's something that immediately creates this connection, that culture identity thing for me. But when somebody from another race is like trying to like, you know, make me non-American, even though I identify as half American, that for me is very offensive. Basically, I agree with everything you guys said. So I don't really have too much to add. Just that, I mean, the question kind of depresses me (laughs) because I'm just like, I don't know what home is. I don't really, like the older I get, the less I feel like I know what home is. And I have to kind of figure that out. It's not really somebody else's business, like what my cultural like heritage or identity is. But I'm also like, I want to be like, my family is from Lebanon and we have really good food. But you know what? I know you're going to say that if I'm like, oh, my hummus from Lebanon. Oh my gosh, I love hummus and tabbouleh. Like that's what I'm going to hear, you know, sometimes, you know what I mean? And it's like, but at the same time, I don't know, it just depends on the person and then also their intentions. Like when somebody says that, even if like the best reach that they have is food, you know, like grape leaves and all of that and whatever. Like, I I do feel like they are trying to connect with me and their limited experience of my culture. But it's also not entirely my culture. Like, this is my culture, too. I don't know. It's a weird world that we live in. It's just so bizarre. I would love to think that people have the best of intentions at the end of the day. But you can also sense it. You can you can intuit when someone is a bit, like, microaggressive. Like, you can feel that subtle undertone of hostility when somebody asks you that question in the grocery store. Or, you know, when you're looking at, like, mugs for your kitchen or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's all very complicated. So that's what I have to say. (laughs) That's really what this is that racist game is about. You know, all these questions are very complicated. You can't automatically, you know, assume that, yeah, this is racist or no, this is not racist. Everything requires a discussion. Yeah, everything requires thinking. Yes. Which brings me to our next question. There's something I wanted to bring up with this particular part of the question, though. It makes me think of when Medina meets Haley and Haley automatically assumes she's either African or Indian. Like those were her automatic assumptions. It's kind of the same, I feel like, as asking, where are you really from? You know, because she's trying to narrow it down. She's just a Whole Foods Haley. Like, I don't know. That sounded terrible in and of itself, but. I was just going to say, like, we do get the Whole Foods Haley's out there in the world, but sometimes it's we help them learn more when we answer the question. Like, even if it's on one hand, it's really irritating sometimes. But then if somebody doesn't really know, and they don't know how to articulate it in a polite way, like, I can't really judge them. I just need to be able to share as best as I can and then see how they respond from there. And if they're still going to be microaggressive, then I can handle it differently. But only by talking with each other and communicating outside of our comfort zone can we better understand each other and experience, like expand our understanding of the world that we live in, you know? Like we kind of help people out, I think, when we answer the question. I mean, I don't like to ask the question, but if somebody asks me the question, like I'd rather give them a chance than, than not, even if I feel like they didn't handle that very well. No, that's definitely fine. I get that. I just also, I don't know. I just feel like with the internet at my fingertips, it shouldn't be my job. 
to have to explain this. Like, I feel like looking up how to ask somebody properly, like a question, you could probably Google that. And I bet there's a whole list of answers. Are we ready to move on to the next question of the what is racist game? Being scared when you spot a woman in a hijab or a burqa or when you see an Arab with a beard, is that racist? And you're not expressing your thoughts. You're not saying, you're not showing it any way that you're scared. You're just having those thoughts. Is that racist? Having the thoughts, I think, is just part of human nature. It's an instinct in us to try to identify safe environments. And sometimes we do have natural reflexes that are counterintuitive to what today's society is because we have progressed so quickly that a lot of our biology hasn't caught up. So I think it's less about what you think and more about how you act and what you say. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with it's hard. It's a little difficult to like understand it because again, it depends on the person. For example, when like Leslie was in the train and then like she like holds her back really tight when she's a black man. Like, so is it like a sort of like a generation kind of gap in a way? Like, I wonder if to an extent. I mean, but I think it's also affected by like our, our sociopolitical climate. If we were to look at it, it seems like the story would kind of mostly frame it as largely a generational gap because we do see like basically every middle-aged or older person tends to be a bit more cautious of people with different like cultural backgrounds or religious beliefs. Like the old guy that was really paranoid and Leslie and Medina Aisha's mom. I mean, I don't know if like that might be like a sub point or something, but in reality, I feel like we'd have to just take a time machine and go back to the 50s and 60s and see in a way that's the sci-fi nerd in me, like wanting to just see that for myself. But I mean, also, I, I feel like we were the generation that like 9-11 like happened and we didn't see too much crazy happen in this country towards like Muslim Americans until after 9-11 and you know suddenly it was a lot crazier to be even with like the Gulf War and everything right because that was still happening but then you had 9-11 and I mean that's a whole complicated thing that I lack the articulation for but I think that it's a new question for today's for this generation how will this generation handle multicultural interactions in the world you know I, I feel like to some extent our generation has gotten a lot better at navigating that than previous ones, sort of. But that's just not just from my own experience. But I remember a professor I had in college, he taught Latino and Latina literature, like a class of, and so he was from Puerto Rico. And he said that when he was a kid, like Black people and Hispanic people would sit, and that's like, those were his, like he described, they would sit at different tables. And now he sees, you know, that like black people and like Latino people, you know, will sit at the same tables in school and have conversations. So he described when he was telling us that day that he saw over the course of his generation, you know, like in the start, there was more racial division between two groups. And later on, and like, you know, towards nearer to our current time that there was less of that. But we have to keep in mind also that with different current events, with what we see around the world, this will also shape our discourse with each other. And this will shape how we interact with each other. So it's not enough just to ask, is our generation like less racist than if a previous generation was racist? But like they kind of go hand in hand, this, the political and the racial stuff that we see happening today. You know, because now we see our country is like super, super polarized. And that's probably I should stop after that. I definitely agree with 
everything that you guys just said about the generational thing. Older people do tend to be more black and white in my experience. It's harder to explain to my parents, even though my, yeah, the upbringing, that is a huge factor because my parents, they also grew up in a place where everybody looks like them. And, you know, here they, they're the inferior race, but they grew up in a place where everyone is just like them and everyone's the same. So they also sort of have that ignorance in them that they don't really try to understand the gray areas of life. That's something that I struggle with a lot when I'm talking to them. And I agree that this generation, that us, we're really the ones who are making this, you know, like we're talking about things, we're discussing, we're not, you know, you know, like pushing it under a rug. We're talking about diversity, we're talking about racism, we're talking about me too. And now it's as if these things are trending now. If companies aren't doing it, if brands aren't doing it, if they're not embracing, you know, Me Too or diversity, they're kind of, you know, people are, you know, not embracing them. So it's sort of, you know, it's, it's a good thing that this is happening. It's, it's kind of good that people are, you know, jumping on this trend, you know, it's sort of like this bandwagon thing now, you know, it might seem like annoying that, okay, you know, like that Gillette ad, for example, I felt like they were trying too hard to like, you know, support the Me Too movement. And that could be another podcast. But in a way, it's good that, you know, this is becoming the trend to discuss these things, to have open conversations. And this really is a thing of our generation. So definitely, you know, generation and childhood upbringings, exposures that people have, you know, I wouldn't personally be scared if I see a woman in a hijab or or an Arab with a beard, because that's, you know, I grew up knowing women with hijab. I grew up knowing, you know, my grandfather's with beard, and I, I know they're loving people, but people who did not grow up to having these people in their lives aren't necessarily, you know, thinking the way that I'm thinking. So again, you know, it brings up the question, yeah, is it is that racist or is it not? And I guess the answer is maybe, maybe not. Yeah. If I can add to that too, because like when I used to wear a headscarf, I felt like my friends would treat me a bit differently and they'd be afraid to say certain things and kind of censor themselves like cursing for example they would be like oh we can't curse around her so they would like censor and edit their language around me but when I took off my headscarf it was like I heard different conversations happening around me and they were less afraid and I'm just like but guys I'm still the same person like I'm still exactly the same person I think that in today's age what people associate with like the headscarf and like an Arab guy, like a beard or, or, you know, all of that. I think it's affected by their experience of the media, like what they will see faces. It's so great that we have Rashida Tlaib and Han Omar in government stuff right now. Yes, because we have more positive representation and not just a bunch of negative news clips from like across the pond. You know, when people see that Muslim Americans like are normalized because we've been here, but they'll actually like interact with people more who are of that, then maybe it will be less like they won't have those fears. And so that won't be an issue anymore. But, you know, the further away that people stay from people who don't look like them, then the more likely they are to be racist. And Bob's your uncle, which is kind of a funny thing to add there because I definitely would not have an uncle Bob, but hey, whatever. 
That's another form of racism, which you mentioned earlier with, with the Medina's friend, Ethan. So we're going to talk about sexual racism. So as mentioned, Ethan, a friend of Medina and Anaisha, talks about his best friend in high school and whether she was a racist or not. So his friend was only attracted to white guys. And then he, he then questions like if his friend was a racist. So he states that, you know, from his own experience, he says, I only recently met a black girl I was attracted to. Before that, I was never attracted to one. So was I a racist? If I was gay, am I misogynistic for not being attracted to women? So I think that sort of why I want to talk about sexual racism, which is a specific form of racial prejudice enacted in the context of sex or romance, right? So you see this in like these dating apps where people would have it on their bios, like no Asians, white men only. What do you guys like think about that? Does it make you a racist if you have a racial preference when it comes to dating? Or sex. I just, I'm going to go back to like, I think that people are a product of their environment. And if they are not interacting with people of different cultures and backgrounds on a personal level, so more than just seeing faces on TV or whatever, or on social media, then they're not going to get that. Like, I don't know, they're just, they're going to miss out on so much of the human experience that is learning from each other and having amazing adventures and experiences with each other regardless of our cultural background. Actually, it's super important to have that as part of who you are and everything. So, I mean, but then someone would be like, oh, but you're attracted to who you're attracted to. But at the same time, if you would describe your attraction as being so like limited to one person, like maybe you should get out of your comfort zone and talk to somebody else and actually get to know them and then see if you would have an attraction to them. You know, for each person, whatever that is, is subjective to like their interests and what they're looking for in other people. I would hope optimistically that people would try to learn from each other from their personality like and then be attracted to them at least part of that would be from their personality and then they would get past whatever limited experiences they had before it's a little easier said than done i'm just based on my experience it's just it's not the most social person it's hard for me to go out and just like and just start a conversation. So some characterize discrimination among partners on the basis of race as a form of racism. Others presented as a matter of preference, right? Sort of with the latter more on preference rather than you know, being a racist. But then I'm in a conflict with myself because like a true preference in a way is it, you're trying two options, right? You're trying both options. And then whatever you like, you go with that. So like for me, like being, you know, raised in a culture where I'm supposed to be with a brown Muslim woman, like I never want to be with them. And I've never dated a brown Muslim girl. And I think part of it was like from my upbringing, like I think what I'm trying to say is like, I think my parents ruined brown Muslim girls for me, <laughs> but I don't think I will ever date or, you know, like arrange marriage with, with a brown Muslim woman. I have a different perspective to bring. Yes. So I've, I've only been in one relationship my entire life and it was a very serious and intense relationship and it was it was a brown muslim man so i would say it was intentionally a brown muslim man just because when i was getting serious with him i wanted it to be easier for the person to handle my family and like i mentioned before you know if i do if i am if i do happen to get serious with a non-bengali non-muslim guy i would ask him you know are you willing to go through all this drama that you will go through because the drama is guaranteed it's gonna happen and i mean the relationship did not work out because i mean a lot of reasons that i'm not i could do another podcast about that but i have been attracted 
to people from different races. I have been attracted to black guys, white guys, Hispanic guys, Asian guys, and I've, you know, was sort of casual with them, but it, it never got to like a serious point. And I'm questioning myself, is it, is it because I'm racist or is it just because I'm terrified of my family reacting to that? So, and they obviously don't know about, you know, all those um, casual interactions that I've had and they would totally disown me if they did. That's, yeah, that's another thing. But that also puts me sort of like this whole like sexual racism thing. It puts me in a confusing state as well. It kind of makes me face my own like complex thoughts. Am I actually being racist for not wanting to be serious with, you know, a non-Bengali, non-Muslim guy just because of the trouble that I will have to go through and the trouble that he has to go through as well. So I personally think that, I mean, maybe I'm not being racist. I mean, I like to believe that. I think you have a lot of pressure. Yes, that's that's exactly the truth. And I, I mean, you know, when I see an attractive person, I mean, I identify as heterosexual, but even when I see an attractive woman, I, I admire her beauty and I say, wow, she's, she's beautiful. So I think, you know, when it comes to like attraction, when it comes to like, if you're like saying it out there, you know, I've, I've seen, I, I was actually reading this article on Daily Beast where I've seen that people on like their dating profiles, they explicitly say no blacks or no Asians. Like they just put it out there because it just makes it easier for them to filter out. I don't know if you, if you just put it like that, it sounds very racist. You should at least be experienced too. Yeah. It's, it's weird because like, how can you say no blacks if you've never dated a black? Girl? Exactly. Um, yes. And I kind of sort of fall on that same thing a bit, you know, like I've never been a black man. I've never dated an Asian. So like, how can I say that I'm not attracted to them? But I am so lonely, but you should go out. And so maybe, yeah, like as Nadia said, go out and talk with the other person. So I've dated all over the spectrum, all over the spectrum. No color is absent for me. I think beautiful men are beautiful men and it is what it is. But especially with like these online profiles that are just like no Asians, you know, no black people. Like, let's think of it as being somewhere else. What if that was a sign on a building? You know what I mean? Like, it all of a sudden looks different. So why is it, you know, that we're one way on the internet, but then if it's in public, it's completely different all of a sudden. You know, it's still the same. It's the same aggression. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. That's just the way I, if you can't put it on a building and you can't say it in public, probably not a thing you should something you should work on is what that is. But it sounds like, as you said, you've dated all over the spectrum, so you do have a lot of experience with, that's really nice. What are you trying to say? That sounds rude. (laughs) No. (laughs) You just straight said on this podcast, sounds like you have a lot of experience chowder. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I would be more social and not going in and and experience that. So Yeah, I'm the same chowder, so you're not alone (laughs) in how you feel. That makes you feel better. I just wanted to point out, you guys are overtly advertising things like this like these websites are you know it's not like you're putting it on a dating profile you're still willing you know to if they're willing to work with you you're willing to work with them and that makes a real big difference but that's i wanted to throw that out there because you guys looked like you were feeling sad about it and i'm not trying to make you sad (laughs) i'm just trying to And I just want to say that dating can be like really, really sucky and terrible (laughs) because people are super, super weird and strange. And you think someone is like really cute and then bam, they have some like really creepy part of who they are. And you're like, oh my God, stay away from me, (laughs) please. (laughs) Like it, it happens. So, I mean, I would never like to date online anyway or anything because it's so, people are so weird. (laughs) 
people are so creepy sometimes. It's just, you know, it's better to see people like in person or whatever. But I mean, everybody is like their own individual circumstance or whatever. I think I don't have anything else to add to my previous opinion. Just that I think we should all talk to each other more and just get out of our houses, <laughs> but at our own paces. But I haven't gotten out of the house. <laughs> should we now talk about maybe the ending of Infidel? And um, what do you guys thought about it in terms of art and what happened in the plot? I have so many things. One of the things actually I want to bring up that is not directly related to the ending it kind of has something to do with it because i had to read i read this book twice like just to make sure i got everything i want to talk about grace you know who grace is you guys remember is it the asian friend yes i find grace to every time i'm really sorry if we can't put this in the podcast i don't even care every time i saw her i was like fucking grace like here you are again like running your mouth i hate you grace like i have a lot of strong feelings but after the second time, I realized she does something really important to the story. And it's not just her function as being fucking grace. It's also, it really ties the spirits to hate. Because every time fucking grace opens her mouth and is talking about, you know, she says those people and she says all this other stuff, a spirit shows up. So like she, and then on top of that, the biggest scene to me that really solidified this idea was actually in the very end when Medina is running from Tom and topples over the stairs and she goes to get up and oh God, it's a ghost, right? And did you notice that when the guy that she's living with comes out, he sees it and he's constantly saying, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? And he tries to like hit it. Did you notice Grace didn't see it? She went out there when he was getting pushed, but the ghost was gone from the panel. And she's like, what's happening? She's feeding them and she doesn't realize it. And I feel that's so important for the overall idea that she is feeding these hate ghosts. <laughs> Fucking Grace is feeding hate ghosts and doesn't even know it, which is what like... I don't know. I just fucking Grace. I just hate. I hate her, but at the same time, I appreciate what she does. I don't know. What do you guys think of the tenants in the house, just overall? But logically, if they did show themselves to her, then she would no longer be a food store. So that's like fantastic because, yeah, otherwise, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. See this? See how he sees it? Or wait, no, it's over. See, he sees it. He's trying to hit it. And then fucking Grace, fucking Grace, it's gone. It's not even there. The Hispanic guy she lives with sees it, but she doesn't. I think the fact that you hate her so much makes her such a great character. You know, that yeah. itself says that <laughs> her... She meant something. Yeah. She, she stood out to you. Good job, writer. Well, she stood out because she was a minority character dissing more minority characters. And that makes me so angry because I'm like, united we stand, divided we fall kind of idea. Like, yeah. <laughs> I like that the, the last chapter sort of opens up with the, the sort of the uh, perspective of each of the neighbors, the tenants that previously lived there. And I realized, like, I think when I first read the book, I read it twice. When I first read it, I didn't necessarily realize like the sort of ghost demons are like a form of those tenants that previously passed away so it was nice to like sort of have like like a circle full circle sort of thing so you find out what happened in the building and snooping around and um tripping and then bomb and then it's so so i enjoyed start like opening the, like first page of, of, of chapter five and then it just sort of has like these conversations from what was it was it ronnie with the ex the couple I don't think it was Ronnie. I don't remember. But it was a Korean couple first. They were talking, but they were also saying, the husband was saying like racist things. And then he went to like Harvard. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Likes Korean food. Yeah. 
And then he was like talking briefly, talking, mentioning like his uh, one of the professor that he liked. The professor couldn't work anymore, but because he he was giving a lecture about how slavery in America, like or mm-hmm. some, somewhere in that line. That was interesting to get a get a context of like these previous tenants who passed away from the from the from the bombing, and then they sort of like like form of the evil spirits that like now haunt you know Aisha and, and Medina. Like I said, I was really stuck on word choice. Right. I really liked that at the end they chose to call the spirits Ifrits because Ifrits, I had to look it up, but Ifrits have a tie to Arabic mythology. And generally speaking, like very generally, because when you look it up, you get a lot of weird, you get a lot of anime, you get a lot of Final Fantasy VII because Ifrits are tied to so many things. But in general, Ifrits are angry spirits that died and that's what kind of holds them to earth and i just love that that's what he chose because the crown mentions ifrits once but he chose that when even words like poltergeist it would have had the same meaning you know so i don't know i just feel like pulling ifrit has such a different connotation behind it but i'm not entirely sure i was wondering if you guys knew anything or wanted to throw anything it's similar to jinn you know yeah yeah it's a type of jinn yeah, which is, should we clarify for the listeners what a, what a jinn is? A jinn is like a fire spirit, like a genie is like what people would call it. But like the jinn were made of fire and you have good jinn and you have bad jinn or whatever. Hi. And they have a, the way to defeat them is to um, recite dua. Which really sad now that I know that's how you do it, and, and that's all she had to do was. And I feel so bad. I'm like, oh lord. It was not this hard. What I want to say, I feel like it's going to be better for a later thing, but like with horror and, you know, with it being a horror story, I mean, we are the monsters, right? So, I mean, the the spirits, they were people who used to live there and, you know, they probably had those like unresolved questions of why they were the victims of something that was, you know, like xenophobic like fears which caused them to sort of stay there and and everything but sorry this sounds kind of ranty on one hand it's like oh hey they brought up like the and everything and that they were like the type of jinn on the other hand i'm like i'm still assessing how i feel about it because it could be like a new horror trope you know kind of like native american burial ground and so with this story it's the because it also there's a cultural connection to like the muslim american characters but otherwise it could have easily been a poltergeist so there, it's like a double-edged sword to me. Like on one hand, hey, people can learn something about like horror belief from another culture, or, like a horror trope from another culture. And then also it's like, okay, what extent is this just going to be like for marketing or something? But is that a bad thing if to help people think about xenophobia more and make better choices in their lives as a result of a horror story? Like, so maybe it's not such a bad thing. You can see it's like back and forth. Girl, that real reveal was when they were in the apartment and she made that joke about bombing and there was that silence and she was yeah. like, I'm just kidding. Or, yeah. Did you see her face? That shit wasn't a joke. She meant that shit. Like her face looked scared and uncomfortable. And that's what you, that's the face you have when you mean it. You know oh, what I mean? Oh my gosh. I remember now. Cause yeah. everybody, there was like an awkward silence because she brought up thing that happened in the apartment basically. And she didn't laugh and then said it was a joke. Like no bitch. You're not fooling anybody. Fucking Grace, get out of this apartment. That's what I'd be like, but I hate why, Grace. <laughs> why she even stayed? Like, why did anybody who was there when the incident happened, like, stay? Unless it's because it's, like, oh, New yeah. York and rent is, yeah. They all said they stayed because it was cheap. It was cheaper yeah. afterwards. Yeah, rent is stupid. <laughs> 
So you might have heard that Infidel is getting adapted to a film, and the movie will be directed by a Palestinian film director named Ani Abu Assad. So my question for you guys, what aspect of the comic would you guys like to see more of in the film? You know, Chowder, I kind of agree. When a book or a comic book is really great, you sort of, you love it so much that you almost don't want it to be a movie because you know that the movie's not going to be as good. But at the same time, you love it and you're happy that it's going to be a movie. So it's sort of like a confusing position to be in. But yeah, I'm happy that it's getting, it's becoming a movie because then people will at least be curious about the graphic novel and they're going to go and read it. Like, for example, when Crazy Rich Asians came out, I saw so many people in the train with the book. So it's it's definitely going to create more awareness. You know, it's going to make it much more popular than it is now. And in terms of what I would like to see more, I think maybe... I think how we mentioned that we rarely got to see the perspective of Aisha's mother... And how Alicia was saying that, you know, you can't really trust, you know, when you're listening to someone's opinions, you want to see from their perspective. I would love to see that, you know, things that couldn't be explored in the comic. I would love to see that in the movie, but it's not necessarily that I'm expecting because again, great comic books and great books are never great movies. Is it adapting the unadaptable, I would say? It's not, I mean, Watchmen, but I think it's just great to have more of that in a medium where, like, we had, like, Jordan Peele's Get Out. I haven't seen anything like that before, like, that much, like, sort of representation and, like, a black protagonist in a horror movie. So I'm pretty excited uh, and yeah. I, uh, to see um, a, a brown Muslim girl um, be ahead of that. So, like, Medina in there, I think that would totally, like, kick ass, like... I wonder, like, um, it definitely maybe should be a horror movie first. I think that's going to probably bring in the crowd that didn't read the comic. Mm -hmm. But I think it's definitely something that will have, just like the comic, it has a very important message that um, you can take. I think there, I agree with with adding, like, more backstory for all the characters. I think that would, I mean, there'd be a bit more time to do that, I think. Also, with this originally being a comic and the art style being a really important part of how the story is told and our experience of the story, it would be cool to see some of that translate into the cinematography. And even if they wanted to have a few, like, I mean, sometimes with comic movies, you have like a few shots that are like comic type style or whatever the art style was. If, if some, some of that were to like with the red, with the red and the art, you know, at crucial moments, that'd be kind of interesting to see. Also, from a, from an artistic and how this was composed perspective, like the pages where the shots were framed by the blood, that was amazing. That'd be really, it'd be cool to see like some of that motif, you know, like interwoven throughout different scenes and the more crucial parts of the story as well. That's what I would, would have to say. I don't have the patience for movies. Like, it's not anything, like, I would love to sit and watch a movie. Don't get me wrong. I just, after about half an hour, an hour, I'm like, okay, I got to get up and do something. So I generally just stay at home and watch movies so I can pause them, get up and, like, do random things, come back. That's my thing. I can sit and read a whole comic book, but don't ask me to sit and watch a whole movie. We'll have so many problems. (laughs) Probably be less than two hours, maybe. Or if they want to, I would like to see them build up the suspense more because they'll have that opportunity, especially with those moments where we get the close ups on the door. Like we can feel it in the comic that, you know, there's a build up. But I would love to watch the scene of us in her perspective walking down the hall to it. You know what I mean? Like I love build up scenes like that. So 
maybe like the music that that they might even put because we don't get that with the comic. We can yeah. sort of use our imagination. So maybe that's no something. way. That's the important part. That's the best part about horror is the silence because music I think is comforting. Um, sounds very well. So, but the mainstream ones probably not as much. But yeah, I think I hope they don't get tacky with it though. Like you know, like when you have like an Arab character, like like a Muslim character or something, and then you have like the Adan, like some like wailing like Arabic Quran or something, and like I can guarantee that's probably I don't know. I can't guarantee it. What am I saying? Okay. Basically, I hope they don't get too tacky with with the music and have some kind of element like the like the wailing, like in Arabic or something somewhere, because that'd be really irritating. I think it has to be really careful not to fall into stereotype area, like territory, like tokenized territory. And I think it's got a really thin line to kind of walk. Also, they have to be really particular with casting because we've seen from other movies and other shows that they have to be like, but on with casting or we're going to know. Well, look at you, Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with the casting part. That's important. There's like a great like representation of a lot of different like groups in the comic. I think that they tried to keep that. It would be a shame to lose that in the movie. So I hope that they that they kind of keep that the same. I'm sure they will, but yeah. It's just a thing with like movies lately and stuff that like things get like whitewashed or like that that type of thing. So hopefully it stays the same. At the end of the day, would you say that Infidel is a political book disguised in horror or is it genuinely a modern horror book primarily with political undertones? Or would you say it's somewhere in the middle or just one of the two? Let's discuss. I have opinions on everything. I have opinions on this. I think it's impossible to make horror without making it political because in order for us to like be afraid of something it has to be something we can identify with and it's not just stuff like get out you can even look further back and even um look at godzilla for example he's my favorite example because godzilla is technically birthed from the fear of radiation yeah from when we dropped atomic bombs like things like that are always pulled from our reality. So I think horror and politics have to kind of go hand in hand. You just have to be careful with how heavy you are on one or the other. And I think this one does a pretty good balance. I'm thinking of like, do you remember all those uh, was the guy, the grandfather of zombies, like father of zombies, George R. Romero and his like creation of zombies. Yeah, and like sort of like these zombies sort of represented, I think like more of like consumerism and how boring our lives are. Yeah, maybe, you know, I think you're right. Maybe um, good horror should maybe be political. I saw this as as both in a way, you know, and I was glad to read a horror comic that's like, it's generally terrifying, but it also serves like a message. You know, the comic it has the representation of a brown Muslim protagonist and it deals with ongoing like real world issues of racism, Islamophobia, xenophobia. And I think the horror elements sort of like elevate like these topics and it goes together very well. And I'm not sure if I would have read it if this was like simply like just another co- like a, like a drama comic kind of thing, I think the horror parts like definitely helped like put like definitely got my attention, especially the cover. But granted, it probably would have still been a good comic if it wasn't a horror comic. But I think putting like a face or some sort of physical like manifestation of prejudice in like that sort of weird gruesome demon like beings, I think that's something we probably just like see much of now with a diverse cast of characters and backgrounds. I do think it's both or makes us very, very well. 
I think it was the other way around for me. I read it when I approached it. I was interested in it because it was political. And I'm not like a horror fan. I'm, well, here's a confession. I'm a wimp. I'm a hyper, like highly sensitive person. I'm sensitive to loud noises and light. And well, you get the point. I'm a wimp. So I sleep with one light on and I don't like roller coasters. My friends were obsessed with, you know, exorcist and I never understood why they're obsessed with it. I just, it's just not my thing. I'm totally ignorant about this genre. So I learned a lot from this podcast, like how, you know, characters are supposed to be like, you know, like this good guy and the bad guy, you know, it's, it's that, that's just the way horror is. So it was, I approached it as a political graphic novel but towards the end you know when I finished it I felt that it was horror because I mean you know the fact that there's hate in the world and we want to believe that we can fight that hate with love but that's not necessarily the case I think that's you know that is a horrifying thing you know that's that's that makes the world a horrifying place to live in so that whole aspect you know with all the gruesome spirits and this whole realization that maybe love isn't enough to fix all the problems in the world. That makes this really a modern horror comic book. Medina said it best when she was like, racism's a cancer that never gets cured. Only gets remission. The best you get is remission. I love what everybody said. You guys have amazing and fantastic insights on this, which is awesome. So I will add mine to the bunch, which is that I see this as a political horror, but I'm going to go far as like, as so far as to say that I feel like it's doing something more for horror than what we started out with. And this is just coming from my boyfriend loves like classic horror movies. And I've been getting this like initiation into things that I missed when I was growing up. So like the Nightmare on Elm Street and Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby and all of, of these. And they're great. They're great. They're all like works of art. I'm not going to hate any of them. I love them all. They're, they're a new experience, each and every one. And I learned a lot more about the horror genre from starting to pick up those movie classics. I mean, that's just from the movies, though, not from like stories. And stories wise, I love like Harlan Ellison, I would kind of sort of put in that category, like his storytelling. But stories like Get Out and stories like Infidel, they're so much more relatable to to our generation. It's not just like homogenized and it's so relatable. It's so more relevant. I feel like this is a story that it's a horror for minority characters more than anything, just because of our like, and and people just based on like our current sociopolitical landscape. I mean, you know, back to, we are the monsters. I mean, and in this story, you know, you have xenophobic stuff making xenophobic monsters. So like the minority characters in this like building have to deal with like living racists and dead racists and both of them at the same time. Of course you would go insane. Of course you would question your sanity. And every single one of them is just trying to be like a regular human being, like not regular, a normal, just have like a life, like a basic life with all the happy things. And that's like the Star Wars scene opening up, like like the, you know, like Chris and, and the... The, the bunt cake, the Star Wars bunt cake. And like, we all want that kind of thing, you know? That's so, I mean, I feel like this, this was a horror story that speaks to what the American experience is today. And I hope that a lot of people pick this up and read it, you know, especially if they are curious about what that could be like. So, yeah. So it sounds like you guys would definitely recommend this book. 
Yes. And who would you recommend it to? Everyone. <laughs> Any personal close friends or relatives? I would definitely recommend this to my Muslim friends just because I just know they would love it and they can relate to it. I've been banned from suggesting books at my comic book club. So I don't think I'd be allowed to recommend this to anybody. Tell me that I pick books that are quote unquote downers. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't like happy things, but that's not real. You know, I think a good book is a sad book. And that is actually a quote that I got from one of my favorite writers, Khaled Hosseini. And he always writes incredibly sad books. And I always recommend that to people. And then they're kind of mad at me for, you know, for basically them having a meltdown because of the book. But I totally agree that sad books make great books. Thank you. I'm so glad. I've never found anybody that's like, yeah, definitely sad books. I definitely want to feel hurt by the end. You guys remember the, the last page of this book is, is uh, one of the last pages. It's those two sort of brothers. They come in and talk about, you know, their their dad sort of redoing the building after the explosion, uh, the explosion uh, where Medina was involved. And then you see the figure on the wall. Did you guys think that was Medina? Maybe she's haunting. She's going to haunt the people that are racist now instead of the other way around? Or is that just like the thing, how it used to be? Like, like nothing changed pretty much. I don't think it was Medina because a lot of these spirits are tied there from rage. And she didn't go out in rage. She went out you know, feeling like the winner because she's at least saving her friend. If she didn't, like she may be frustrated, but she's at least saving people she cares about. You know what I mean? And she's not dying out of hate. At least that's what I think. Yeah, I would definitely recommend this too, especially like maybe people who not necessarily read comics or they just think it's all of us to be here. So I'd definitely recommend it to them. And also people who always read DC or Marvel. Check out more image comics. I'm really happy I read, read it all. Like I'm happy that I think that the ending was basically following a lot of what a typical horror ending would be like. You have like this, oh, everything's going to be all right. And then you have, da-da-da, like, you know, lurking, you know, phantasm type. There could be more to this. And it's not totally over just in case people decide to make a sequel or, you know, do like another trade or another set of like another arc or something, you know. So I, I'm trying not to like think about it too much right now just because it, it just seems like what a horror movie or like horror movie, what a horror story would kind of end off on that note. I think it was great. I think people should check it out. That's really what I would have to say. Well, all right. That is a wrap. I would like to thank my fellow comic bursters. <laughs> for joining me in this podcast. For more podcasts, reviews, and analysis on comics, movies, TV, gaming, and anime, check out comicsverse.com. My name is Chowder. I'm Anika. I'm Leija. And I'm Nadia. All right, you guys. This chat was made possible by Audible. They have over 180,000 audiobooks for you to choose from. Visit www.audible.com slash comicsverse for one free audiobook. You can sign up for a free trial, download any audiobook you want, and you can keep it even if you don't keep the trial. This is the best place for audiobooks, and I cannot recommend it enough.